the night. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how's it going? Oh, Maddie, 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 it's going great. So let me tell all the listeners out there a little bit of my life, right? The, the things that make me happy, the things that I do uh, because that I just want to do them. So each week uh, on Wednesday nights here in Huntsville, Alabama, we have uh, we have a pub run that rotates from pub to pub to pub. Like this, the city is lousy with rocket scientists and craft uh, breweries. Uh, and so tonight, the one we uh, happened to land on also had a trivia night. So not only did I get a good run and a good couple of beers, but I also got in a good trivia contest in which we fucking won. So uh, I'm coming in here. I'm, I'm, I'm having a good night and uh, I might've had one beer too many, but uh, you know what? What's uh, what's a couple of beers between friends and uh, trivia all-stars. I'm so fucking happy to be here and uh, ready to do a goddamn show. Congratulations on your victory. It was, it was so, so excellent. Glad to hear it. But yeah, we've got ourselves a show to do tonight. Tonight's episode, we're going to be looking at three stories from three different volumes of our favorite anthology series, Legends of the Dark Knight. Oh, I love Legends of the Dark Knight. I think I've said it on the show before, but Legends is the first series I read from issue one. And I got to tell you, while this was, I'm pretty sure, a code book, it, it pushed right at the edge of what you could get away with in the code. And so I was reading a lot of these stories when I was 10 years old, 10, 11, 12 years old. I did not get half the shit that was going on in some of these stories. No, no, of course not. You know, especially in this first volume, like this first volume aimed really fucking high. Like we had the A-list creators. We had, you know, these, these bold, big ideas, taking chances. I mean, it was really something to behold. And, you know, you remember the marketing of, of that number one. Uh, the first new Batman ongoing series in, you know, 50 years or whatever it was. And I think it's, it's a perfect comic book. It's an anthology series. You don't have to you know, know like what's happening right now in Batman's world. You, ha- you don't have to have read the previous 50 issues to understand what's going on. You start at an arc that might be one issue. It might be two issues. It might be three issues but it's going to be a short read. And usually if the writer, you know, knows what the fuck they're doing, it's going to encapsulate everything that Batman is. And it's just going to be the, a tight, compact story. And I just, I just, I fucking love it. Like anthology series are the best, but for some reason they don't sell. And it's a fucking tragedy. We're going to get to the first four arcs of legends which i'm three of those four i have episodes planned that feature them and the first four arcs were all five issue 
arcs and they were all just knock you out of the park arcs the first was a denny o'neill year one era book set some of it with batman's training and some sort of dancing between the raindrops of stuff that happened in and around year one two is grant morrison and klaus jansen doing a supernatural serial killer in gotham story arc three is the introduction of the post-crisis take on Hugo Strange from Doug Mensch and Paul Glacey. And arc four is Venom. I mean, Jesus, like, how much better could you be? And and after that, you get into shorter arcs. I mean, the next one is uh, Mike Barr telling the story of how Leslie Tompkins discovered Batman's identity. The one after that, I don't remember who wrote it, but the art is by Silver Age legend Gil Kane. These are tremendous books. I mean, you just you follow it through that first hundred or so issues, and you're coming across creators who did a lot of Batman work, some who did very little. I mean, Denny O'Neill comes in every few arcs to do another arc or a one-off or something. There's a Mike Mignola drawn one-off. There's a Chris Bacchalo drawn one-off. There's, I'm trying to think of what other ones jump out at me. I mean, there's a few issues in there that do tie into the main stuff that's going on in the Bat books, but it's half a dozen issues tops you don't get a ton with a lot of the major bat rogues it's a lot of smaller stories although you get uh denny o'neill retelling the first batman joker story in one with brett blevins on art that's a great story i could sit here and rattle but i I, we have stories to actually discuss but I, oh man, I mean, even after this first hundred, there are still some really quality arcs in Legends throughout its 200 and change issue run. And again, you could see here at the outset, they have the top level creative teams with a whole bunch of freedom to tell just some great tight little stories. And then at some point it changes over volumes two and three and probably into the successor like batman confidential the idea that oh this is going to be our tryout book and this is what we see now and batman urban legends and secret files and all that stuff but i i really I, i long for the for the era in which you could have this anthology book with your top notch people and just telling just some amazing stories. Yeah, it's a shame because every they usually start out. Your first arc is almost always a big name creator on those anthology books. And we saw it with the the Legends Volume Two started out with the Damon Lindelof story. Confidential Volume One was Andy Diggle and Wills Protasio. Volume Three was Derek Robertson who by comparison to the other names in that run was a bigger name, not 
this is not a, a talk of quality of those arcs. It's just a statement of presence. I don't even think we can call volume three a run. It was, yeah, but volume it three. was, it was kind of a wet fart of a run, which is a shame because it's, and again, that's not speaking to the the quality. Not all of them were were great, but it was a lot more to do with the fact that DC just didn't seem to want to put anything behind the run. Yeah, I, I I've said this in the. Uh, in the, the Bat Chat column. And we're going to hit a lot of the same notes because we fucking love Legends of the Dark Knight and we talk about how much we love it every time. And this is going to be the first episode in which we go over a book that we've already gone over for print. But, 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 I remember when volume three was announced. It was the day I got my first fucking Pfizer shot. I was so happy. Like it was a good day. I get the shot, and as I'm I'm sitting there waiting to, to, to see that, you know, if I don't have some, like, crazy adverse reaction, I get the news that, oh, they're bringing back Legends of the Dark Knight. That's so fucking awesome. I'm so fucking excited. And then just to see it peter out after, what, eight print issues? Yep. It's, just, it's, it's sad. It's fucking sad. I, I just... I don't know why DC editorial brought it back only to just shelve it and just not even, not even shelve it so much as, eh, we'll just let it just, just go. Right. It would be one thing if it was officially canceled, if it was, yeah, we just didn't see the numbers that we wanted, but it's just, it's forgotten. And that that's a bummer. Sigh. (laughs) But let's let's roll into that first story, which, as I said, we're going to be hitting one story from each of the three volumes of Legends. And story number one is Mask. This is from Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 39 to 40, with story and art by Brian Talbot, colors by Ali Optics, letters by Gaspar Saladino, edited by Archie Goodwin and Bill Kaplan. Cover dates are November to December of 1992. The story opens with a short Batman interlude, then has Bruce Wayne awaken in a hospital where he is an alcoholic going through the DTs and all of his life as Batman is nothing but an alcohol fueled hallucination. Slowly, the story unfolds where Bruce must decide whether or not anything he remembers is true and must solve the mystery of his own identity. I don't frequently do this, but I want to give, in addition to the credits here, psychiatric consultant Keith Marsland. And I think that's a big tell for this story, because to my mind, like, right, like, I know that the DSM is like constantly changing and evolving, just like any good science and medicine. We interpret things, we, we change our understanding. Uh, and so experts in psychiatry could read this and think, oh, wow, this is really dated. But to my layman's eye, this reads as a really fucking smart book. And you can tell that Brian Talbot really valued the input of the psychiatric consultant, because it's just 
man, it's smart. I, I love it. And it's a great story. And again, you can tell how much this actual medical perspective was valued. Uh, and just what a great read this thing is. Absolutely. Brian Talbot is probably best known for his uh, creator-owned Luther Arkwright books, but he's drawn issues of the Sandman. He's drawn all kinds of stuff, a lot of 2000 AD. He doesn't have a ton of American work, and this is a tour de force, two issues. And as another note, while reading those credits, something kind of occurred to me. When I wrote, read uh, the editor's credit, the main editor on the first eight, nine years of Legends of the Dark Knight, I think it was eight years, was Archie Goodwin. And I think a lot of what we were talking about, about that incredible assortment of creators that you got for Legends of the Dark Knight comes from the fact that Goodwin was the editor. Because... Archie Goodwin is known as a brilliant creator, but also probably the best loved editor in the history of comics. This is a guy who everybody loved and who brought out the best in his collaborators. He was the main editor on Batman Black and White. He was the main editor on this. He was just so beloved and was so good at what he did. There's a series of one-off stories in the Batman Adventures comic, the animated tie-in to Batman the Animated Series, where Kelly Puckett and Mike Parabek created three sort of goofy supervillains who they had come back as kind of running gag. And each of them were based on three of the main editors at DC at that point. There was the professor, who was Denny O'Neill. There was the mastermind, who was Mike Carlin. And there was Mr. Nice, who was Archie <laughs> Goodwin. And they were all caricatures physically of those guys, but Goodwin was just known to be the nicest guy, and he died tragically young of cancer at the age of 60 back in 1998. And it's one of those, boy, what he could have done if he had lived longer. And it's, I mean, it's tragic when anyone dies young, but when you could have seen what he might have been able to corral, it's even more just heartbreaking and we'll get to more goodwin edited but also some goodwin written stuff over time because he wrote uh, a few issues of legends he wrote well we got, we got to a little of his stuff because he wrote a couple of the uh the black and white stories and uh, a batman graphic novel some detectives and the manhunter serial with walt simonson that features batman uh, in the final chapters. But yeah, when you talk about the early Legends of the Dark Knight, which we've talked about a little because we've done a few of those stories, you got to mention Goodwin and kind of the fact that he's the guy who shepherded this book. 
I mean, just the the design, the presentation of this first volume, I can imagine how attractive this was back in the in the in the comic book store, right? You see, you know, this cover, you've got the the arc title featured very prominently on it. This the the design is great. And it's two issues, and you get a whole story in that two issues. Like I think it's such a fundamentally good concept. And yet, you know, I, and I mentioned this earlier, like I don't understand why these books don't sell, right? DC would still be doing an anthology series if it sold. And yet it doesn't. It's, it's weird, right? Why doesn't everybody love these books? I don't understand. Since I also love them, I am not the person to ask that question to. Yeah, I mean, to, to talk about the actual story here, this... I mean, this is a trope. Let's be fair. I think I was sitting back as I started reading it. I was able to come up with six other examples of protagonist wakes up in the mental institution and all of the fantastical adventures that they take part in are a hallucination off the top of my head. But I think. All right. All right. All right. Give them. Okay. Uh, and five of these are definite. One of them I'd have to look up because I remember reading my way through it while my ex-girlfriend watched it. So I'm not 100% sure on that one. But the ones I can definitely remember are an episode of the podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern, which is probably the most recent, an episode of Smallville, an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, sort of it's it's... Riker and on a, a alien planet, and they've imprisoned him. Uh, an episode of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah, the the one where Riker is also doing like the play at the same time. Yes, uh, that's that's a good one. That's yep. a good one. Uh, an episode of Deep Space Nine, right at the end, where Cisco is this time with the prophets, and he's appearing again in his own mind as the writer from the episode Far Beyond the Stars. It's a second flash to that. And the one I'm less sure of, but I'm pretty sure, is an episode of Charmed, the original Charmed. But again, ex-girlfriend's room reading while she was watching Charmed with her roommate in college. (laughs) Not sure, but I'm pretty sure there was a mental institution one. And I could look it up, but that's not worth my time. Not like I have the, you know, entirety of human knowledge in a small box that sits in my living room, but yeah. we, we got it. We got to keep this show going. We're not going to stop for a fucking charm. Damn right. Uh, but no, that, that sounds like a, a very comprehensive list. And, you know, you say that it's a, it's a trope and I will certainly agree, but nothing in the story feels tired, right? It, it all feels very fresh. I love the idea of not only that Batman is is a delusion, but it's a really pathetic delusion, right? Because you know they they drag him into the into the mental institution as an alcoholic, as someone who is deeply invested in these delusions, and the bat you know outfit is trash bags, right? So it, it's not like the thing is totally imaginary. It is. No, it's real, and it's really pathetic. And with 
Batman, it's easier to buy the Batman as a delusion. Because so many of those other ones I just rattled off, the worlds they exist in are so heightened. And there's all this crazy shit going on. You, you kind of have already bought into a fantastical world there. Batman exists in a world that's only one or two steps outside of the real to begin with, at least in a, a narrower interpretation of Batman outside of the, the DC universe as a whole. So there is something about it that you could easily see someone on the street and they could believe they're Batman. I mean, yeah, you could see somebody who believes they're, they're Superman or that there are vampires all around them too because the human mind is a powerful and terrifying thing. But there's something, especially with how often diagnoses are put on Batman as a character that makes this idea that Batman is just Bruce Wayne having a psychotic break work really well. Yeah, and I'm not really sure that this idea ties into the central premise of, 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 of what we have in the title, like, right, Mask. And it's something that comes up a few times over these two issues, like different masks and whatnot. To me, that connection is not very strong, but that doesn't detract from the overall effectiveness of the story. And it's, it's stylish. The art and the structure of this story. Did you notice the trick with the nine-panel grids? Ooh, I did not notice the trick with the nine-panel grids. Anytime Bruce is in his real world quote unquote with the psychiatry and the hospital all those pages are nine panel grids the minute even in one of those sequences where he starts starts breaking through and having real batman thoughts or whatever the nine panel grid breaks down and then the pages where he's full-on batman there isn't that structure you're goddamn right. I'm, look, I'm looking over the first issue now. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting because you have the rigidity of that nine panel structure, the the certainness of this quote unquote real world. I think those two things absolutely work together. It which is something I did not notice when I was twelve. <laughs> <laughs> I have become a more informed reader in. 28 year oh fuck me no it's gonna be 30 years come no not thinking about that not thinking about that right now but you're gonna live forever matt yeah that's it that's it and talbot's art is beautiful and tragic the bruce wayne the delusional bruce wayne that he draws looks wasted you know, you can draw a, a character and he looks, I don't know how to put it exactly, but it's like, oh, well, that's, you know, Batman. You just drew some stubble on him and made his hair a little ratty. This still looks like Bruce Wayne, but it looks like someone 
who has been through the ringer. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Venom earlier in that scene where Bruce has you know gone through withdrawals. I, I think that gets to your point. It's just like it's Bruce with a beard, <laughs> but this is much more impactful. The art throughout this does a great job of presenting this story that the bits in issue two where he is sort of fighting through the drugs that they've been pumping him full of and he sees a fallen Gotham looks just you can tell that there's a 2000 AD influence with all of its dystopia and the resolution here works we've read plenty of mystery stories or sort of mystery stories or stories with a a hook at the end that haven't worked but this completely follows point to point when you get to the end yeah yeah batman gets this hook this sign that oh this this is real you know when he believes that a delusion of, of catwoman comes to him uh but she cries real tears and it turns out that oh this is actually not a delusion it's uh it's all a charade uh some person looking to take vengeance upon the batman and as you said, like it, it works. Like it's, it feels maybe a little bit rushed. Um, I don't think I would have wanted this at three issues. It feels good at two, but you know, you get to the back end of two and everything has to wrap up and it's, it's smidge rushed. Uh, nothing, you know, nothing feels like there, there's no gilded dent in this book. No. There's no, there's no thing out of left field. Like, I, you know, anybody reading this, I'm sure is, is thinking, okay, is this real? Is it not? Is it a conspiracy? So, you know, when you get to the end of the resolution and it is, oh, you know, Batman was kidnapped. It is a conspiracy. And as the, as the, the sneaky villain is explaining his plot, like everything makes sense. Like, oh, okay. If you did have a drugged Batman, you would take off the cowl. You would see, oh, that's Bruce Wayne. Let me go, you know, devise this, this, this program of psychological torture specifically designed to attack Bruce Wayne. And, and on that note, let me just say, one of the things that I thought really stuck out in the art was uh, Thomas and Martha, uh, their oh. desiccated corpses. Like that was that was a nice graphic horror touch in this in these two issues. Yeah, and the one moment where the the psychologist or psychiatrist is talking to him, and Batman starts seeing him as the Joker, and Talbot. I mean, he draws the Joker for only a couple of panels, but it's a Joker. He draws a. a grinning monster of a joker and a pretty good two-face in one panel too a pretty exactly. horrific two-face yeah and that uh, that joker face like melts off and and the the two-face is good like i am fairly hard on artists slash writers but this this is one of the better double duty books i think we've read talbot has been a writer artist since the 60s 
at least the, if at least the seventies, if not the sixties. I mean, he started with you know underground comics and such. So he by ninety two had had time to hone his craft. It, it's and, and you you see that here. There's not a ton of exposition. There's not those big ginormous word balloons. It's just good fucking art and a great fucking story. And it has an absolutely an absolute banger of a cliffhanger at the end. Oh, does it? Does it? Right out of a Republic serial. And I think he actually, I got to the end. I was like, well, that's like us. And at the beginning of part two, as Batman is seemingly falling out of a building in his trash bag costume, he actually, I think, references the fact that it's like one of those old movie serials. It's like, it absolutely is especially when you're in a world where this might all be a delusion, him falling out of a high window in this crappy knockoff Batman costume is an excellent issue break. Absolutely. And just because I haven't pointed this out anywhere else, let me say that this is, I won't say one of our few stories that I have already read, but this is one that I had already read and that was primarily because Alex uh, Packnadel, the great uh, comic writer, had suggested it on his Twitter feed. And it, it, it holds up. Like, I just, I, I enjoy this story. Like I said, you know, 20 minutes ago, it's smart. It's a good read. And it's, it's different than what you would get out of a monthly comic, right? You know, we just read through, uh, shit. Uh, what was that last? A Fear State. There we go. And I think a smarter version of Fear State would kind of get into some of, not, not these same ideas, but the ideas of, is this real? Is this actually happening? Or is this in Bruce's mind? Like Batman as an unreliable narrator is a great place to explore. And, and, and Fear State never really got there, right? It's just, it was a lot of noise, a lot of you know, fear toxin explosions, a lot of, you know, science fiction. It, it Nowhere near as smart as this book. I agree. And I think we've pretty much run through this one. So that means it's time to put it on the board. We are, as of the end of last episode, at 57 stories. So we're going to be hitting 60 tonight. But Man. yep, but for now, story one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Story 10 is Arkham Asylum, a serious house on serious earth. 20 is Batman Lil Gotham. 30 is Batman Judge Dread, Judgment on Gotham. 40 is Bouncing Baby Boy from JLA 65. 50 is Days of Rage from Huntress Volume 1, numbers 17 to 19. And the bottom of the list is Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves. Sad, shitty book. Shitty, shitty, shitty book. Yeah. So I'm scrolling up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, this, is, this is really tough, right? Uh, and we say that about a lot of books. I, I think this one is tough because it's so tight. It's so well written, but we've settled on our on our top ten. 
it has to be historically important. And I'm looking at this top 10 and man, it's, it's hard to get in there with a two issue series in admittedly just a, an, an amazing historically important anthology series. It's hard. I, I would be embarrassed to put this anywhere after I'd say 15. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, I mean, I think it's pushing right below that top 10. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the story right below it is another writer artist piece. It's six fingers from legends of the dark Knight volume two, uh, 85 to 88. You know how you always defer to me when it comes to things that fall right around <laughs> blades. <laughs> oh, what a gentleman you are, Maddie Lasers. What a gentleman. I think it's right there. And I think the question is, is it b- above or below Six Fingers? You know, we talked about this in the Six Fingers episode. Unfortunately, Six Fingers is... It's the most obscure thing I think we're going to read, Right. It basically never found its way to print. Nobody's out there talking about it. But people, I think, look at this book and have some really fond memories of it. So as much as I love Six Fingers, as much as I love painted comics, the art in this book is, you can't say that it's worse. And I think the story here is tighter and more compelling and really more fascinating. So I absolutely am okay with putting this at 11. And I think that is where this one goes. Our new number 11 is Mask from Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 39 to 40. Speaking of Six Six Fingers and Legends of the Dark Knight, volume two, interesting thing to just point out because I'm a giant nerd when it comes to this particular thing. Technically, this is what we're about to talk about is Legends of the Dark Knight Volume 1 because the original series is Batman, colon, Legends of the Dark Knight, while the digital first anthologies were both just Legends of the Dark Knight. Nobody thinks about it that way, but, you know, I'm being technically correct. The best The best kind of correct. (laughs) But nonetheless, uh, yeah, this story is... Riddler in the Dark from Legends of the Dark Knight, Volume 1, digital (laughs) chapters 53 to 55, collected in the Legends of the Dark Knight 100-page spectacular number two. The writer is Charles Soule, uh, pencils and inks by, uh, actually, all art by uh, Dennis Calero, letters by Deron Bennett, and edited by Hank Cannells, Christy Quinn, and Jessica Chen. Cover date was June of 2013. The story opens with the Riddler turning himself in at the GCPD and Batman interrogating him, finding that he's left a riddle and trying to figure out what this riddle is and why the Riddler has decided to turn himself in while running his usual riddle crimes. Uh, This is the only Batman story written by Charles Soule, a writer who's probably best known for his Marvel work. He has a handful of DC credits, um, a pretty good run on Swamp Thing, some Superman, 
but this is the only Batman he wrote. And for a guy who had a fairly long, if at times not as well received as the runs around it, run on Daredevil, you'd think that he would have been doing some more Batman stuff. Yeah, I think he's had an interesting career. I I first picked up uh, his work on Letter 44, which I think is a great series. If you're not familiar with it, it's basically, oh, what if Barack Obama came into office and it turned out the Iraq war was fake and designed to cover up uh, a massive uh, military industrial complex investment to investigate a looming alien presence on the outside of our solar system. Political intrigue, science fiction, just a, a fun, fun, bonkers read. But yeah, I think everything else he's done has kind of been, as you said, more or less received. Um, uh, I, I think people have some some definite feelings on, on the work he's done. But this is a shift, as we see in this first slash second volume, however you want to look at it. This is a shift into more of the tryout. This is what you see contemporarily with secret files, urban legends. Let's bring in somebody new. Let's see what they got. And, you know, I think Soul demonstrated that he could write a good story here. You know, we can talk about the art and say what you want about that. But I think the core story of a Riddler plot designed basically to save his fucking ass, that's a fun read. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it now because, again... This is a eight, nine-year-old story. We can we can spoil this. What it boils down to is the Riddler pissed off Black Mask, and Black Mask put a hit out on him. So the best way for him to survive is to be in jail where he can't be, you know, whacked until the contract expires, and at the same time give Batman a hint so he can just fuck with Black Mask. And I absolutely love that because this Riddler is a version of the Riddler that we see every now and then that, and that one that I really like because the Riddler should be the most obnoxious man on the face of the earth. This is a guy who not only thinks he's the smartest person you've ever met, but cannot resist telling you constantly that he is the smartest person you've ever met. So, so let me give all the good people out there a little insight into what it's like to go to law school. In every law school classroom across America, there is one person in each one of those classes who always has to chime in and they always have to be first. And we call that person the gunner because they, they got to be first. They got to be in there. They got to give their take. And if you have trouble identifying who the gunner is in your class, it's probably you. Riddler is definitely the gunner. As you say, he thinks he's the smartest person and he can't help but tell everyone that he's the smartest person. And that's, that's absolutely what we have here. You know, he's got this, this, this plot and deliciously, magically, it backfires on him in the end, right? This, this is just a perfect little story of, you know, Batman solving a mystery and then fucking sticking it to Riddler in the last page. 
there is no more satisfying feeling than reaching 100% completion in Arkham game of those Riddler trophies and then getting to punch <laughs> him in the head. And this, this is Batman getting to punch him in the head because it's just like, oh, oh, you know, you just, oh, oh, yeah, you didn't, the, the Black Mask's hitman didn't fulfill the, the contract by midnight. Oh, but you've got a new cellmate, Eddie. Have fun. <laughs> and, and and this is not a riddler who is constantly speaking in riddles, right? It's not a delusional, obsessive guy. You know, it's a mastermind with like a little tick. And it's, I think, probably one of the better versions of the character. I think I might have quoted this here before on the podcast, or maybe in one of the columns. But I would have to dig up the exact quote. But Paul Dini, at one point, when asked about why the Riddler appeared in only a very small handful of episodes of Batman the Animated Series, said that the Riddler is the hardest Batman villain to write. Because a Riddler story is almost by default this complicated mystery. And it has to really hang together. You can't cheat a Riddler story. And one day we're going to read uh, Puzzle Box as, as a whole story for the podcast. And, and I think that's going to be a lot of fun because that, that thing is complex with a great resolution. Oh, yeah. That was one where it was like, oh, this could be great or this could be a giant flub if they don't stick the landing. And they stuck the landing. Stuck it. There are so many Riddler stories that do not stick that landing. But that one does and so does this. Because Eddie always loses in some way or another because of his own hubris. And again, boy, does he that hubris shows through. And I love the Riddler himself complaining about when riddles don't work by regularly quoting the Hobbit at the beginning of this story. What do I have in my pocket is not a riddle. Boy, again, we're going to go back to a, a, an old chestnut of us here. Boy, it's great to see some good Alfred in here. Oh, yeah. Alfred, Alfred running things. Alfred being slightly sarcastic at, at, at points, uh, just being the great, the great man in the chair. And being used as a sounding board and someone who can provide specific information. But it's very easy for a writer to have Alfred actually doing the detective work. And that doesn't necessarily work because Batman's the detective when you have Alfred doing the work it detracts from Bruce being the world's greatest detective but yeah, I think Alfred can provide a different angle a different sort of viewpoint that make that might make Batman reconsider oh you know I hadn't thought about it that way you could be right let me investigate yeah. Oh, absolutely. So um, I think the only sort of soft spot in this story is the art. 
Uh, I think likewise with the, uh, you know, writers getting a tryout. Yeah, you know, this is artists getting a tryout. And I think the critical moment where the art fails is in the very beginning of the first issue and that you have the Riddler basically given himself up to the police, right? He wants to be arrested. And so he stabs a henchman. The panel in which this happens is at the very bottom. It's a very minor detail. Like, you know, Riddler takes this, takes this knife, stabs his henchman in the leg. And it really does happen at the bottom of a panel. And if you're anything like me and you're not paying exceptionally close attention, you're going to miss that detail. And like the next thing just appears like this, just like this leap of like what happened now Riddler's in a cell. Like, what did he do? Gordon's in there telling him that was a really fucking stupid thing. I've never seen anybody be this stupid. And I had to go back and read it a couple of times to see that detail of, Oh, guy got stabbed in the leg and and there are some moments of sort of where the quality dips it's not exactly what you what you'd want but i think in that precise moment of of wanting to get that story across visually it doesn't work i had to do the same thing i missed it as well calero is an acquired taste i guess he's an artist who i've read his stuff in various places he did a a handful of issues or at least an arc or two on the x factor for marvel he's done a lot more marvel work than he's done dc work a couple of the x-men noir miniseries the only other dc thing i know he's done off the top of my head is a little bit of legion of superheroes where his art was even more of an odd match for this big bright future for someone who spends so much time with his art, the shadows and things, that's a Calero trademark. Legion was not a book I felt was suited to his style. And here it's just not what I I would have liked a, a cleaner style, something that made the, the story flow a little better, especially because Soul gives him a lot of room to work there are vast bits of the story where there is no dialogue and all all the action scenes are not dialogue heavy or caption heavy they're all there for the art to tell the story and because the story is kind of the storytelling and the art is kind of muddy that requires way more concentration than I feel like it deserved. And I mean, listen, we've, I think we've both said it. We're, we're story guys. We read, we read comics. Like that, that, that knife scene is a total stumbling block. And anytime where I have to go back and reread or go back and like ask questions of like, Oh, what happened there? That's, that's an, you know, that's an impediment to just getting lost in the story. And that's that's an example of where the artist has failed. I will say, though, his black mask is creepy as fuck. Oh, yeah, that's 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 a good use of shadows on the black mask. I I will absolutely co-sign on that. The one other thing that this reminded me of 
the somewhat forgotten and looked down upon cousin to the main Arkham trilogy video games, uh, Arkham Origins, has a similar plot, except it's Batman who Black Mask has hired a bunch of hitmen to try to take out in one day. It's like, oh, I mean, it's absolutely coincidence. I mean, it's not like it's exactly a story that hasn't doesn't have its roots in any number of other versions. But it was like, oh, hey, it's kind of like Arkham Origins, which I, you know, I at least beat that one. Still haven't beaten Arkham Knight. Damn <laughs> Batmobile levels. Mm. Uh, one day, Matt, one day. One of these days. Unless you've got anything else, I think we're, we're good on this one. I don't have anything, so that means it's time to put it on the board. Okay. I'm feeling like this is solidly middle of the road. Yeah, yeah. Soul writes a good story, but yeah, as we've just spent the last couple of minutes talking about the art, I don't think quite holds up its end of the deal. Oh, let's let's do let's let's opening bid. I'll say above faces at four. You know, I was looking right around there in that that area. I don't think it beats my beloved blades. I think story and art there are both solid. Even with the, the admitted issues with some of the, the softness and some of the story. But as much as I enjoy it for being fun, it's still probably better than 39 Mad Men Across the Water which has an ending that is just sort of like, hey, wacky ending. Uh, let's keep going up. I'd probably put this above overdrive. Yeah, I'm actually thinking that this goes above overdrive. I think it goes below Arkham Asylum Living Hell. Because while we have some problems with the supernatural stuff in there, the stuff that isn't that, the Warren White stuff, the Humpty Dumpty stuff, the Jane Doe stuff, is good real good. And the Ryan Souk art throughout is gorgeous. So I think this drops in right below Blades at number 36. Uh, wait, uh, 37? Yes, sorry, 37. I just I that was just me misspeaking. You're entitled to the occasional mistake, Matt. Once every 20 episodes. I I, I appreciate it. Okay. Our final story of the night is Haunted. This is from Legends of the Dark Knight, volume two, numbers seven and eight digitally number four in print uh the writer is stephanie nicole phillips pencils by pencils and inks by max dunbar colors by tamra bonvillain letters by alw's troy pateri edited by dave wilgosh uh with a cover date of may 2021 bruce wayne outbids the penguin for a box at a charity auction which sets Batman down the trail of investigating a century-old crime 
while the penguin attempts to recover the box and hide a family secret. So I think, as you mentioned earlier, this is the first time we're covering something on the podcast that we've covered in the print column before. And uh, I, I knew this moment was going to happen. It's uh, it's really a magical night. Uh, I we covered all of the third volume, didn't we? Yeah. Again, we, we've got this this soft spot for uh, for legends. And I gotta say, my second read was exactly the same as the first. The things that irritated me uh, the first time around irritated me the second time around. But I think on the whole, we end up at a at a fairly decent spot with the story. I just don't necessarily like how we got there. This story could have used a third chapter, yes. but a third chapter in the middle mm-hmm. to, to tease out some of the things that we don't get a lot of because we get this really fun little opening of the auction and the bidding. And then we get a solid ending, but there's a bit, and we talked about it in the column too, I believe, where Bruce enters this sort of VR to recreate these murders, the uh, West End Wraith murders of 1910. And it's just sort of like, hey, Batman's in virtual reality. And we don't get any explanation. We don't have any even discussion of how this tech came about or where it came from it's just sort of there yeah there, there's no techno babble to explain why batman can see and investigate this thing that you know happened more than 100 years ago so it just it feels just weird and artificial and a, a means to an end and so, so that's, I think, the primary concern. Like, that, that's the thing that really bothers me on the first read and on the second read. The other thing that bothers me is in that first, you know, couple of scenes where, once again, petulant Bruce makes his appearance, where it is, oh, why am I at this charity auction? Boo-hoo. And I remember making this point in the column. And I, I hate that. I hate that, you know, Bruce doesn't know how to, to play the game of being Bruce. Like, he should hate the playboy aspect of his life, but he should understand, oh, this is just what I got to do. And this is one of the things that I really loved in the Nolan movies. Like, that scene where you have Bruce Wayne who says, oh, I just bought the hotel. You know, I'm going to take my models and we're going to make a scene in the, in the hotel pool, like, or the restaurant pool or whatever it was. Fountain. It, yeah, <laughs> the fountain. It's perfect. Like, Bruce Wayne should be an obnoxious person. And the idea that Bruce, in a conversation with Alfred, doesn't understand how he has to basically keep up appearances uh, that's that's not my Bruce Wayne. That's not that's not what I'm looking for in in a good Batman story. But what's what's funny is that two pages later, Phillips gets it right when he outbids Penguin, and it's just so smug to Oswald, and Penguin is so pissed about it, and Bruce is just like, "It's for charity." It's like, 
I, I outbid you for this thing that I really don't care about. I just spent a hundred grand. Meh. I'll just dig around in the couch cushions and pull that out. I, and I, I think it's not fully drawn out in the story why exactly Cobblepot really wants the box, right? The box is basically explaining, you know, how his, uh, what is it, grandfather, question mark? Grandfather, probably great-grandfather. Yeah, about how he was an asshole, and I'm not sure exactly why you know the penguin would be so concerned with that so here's my thing about that penguin is an a an inconsistently written character there are some versions of the penguin and they're probably the versions of the penguin i like the most who is desperate to be high society Mm. and he's not the Cobblepots have lost all their money the generation before. Oswald's mother and father were middle class at best. And they were, you know, they were founding families of Gotham. It's the Waynes and the Elliots and the Cobblepots and the Canes. Those are, then there are other families that kind of float in and out as founding families of Gotham. But those are the four that tend to get mentioned the most. But by by Oswald's time, while the Waynes still had a ton of money and were, you know, still prestigious, the Canes were doing okay, the Elliots were doing okay, the Cobblepots were on the outs. So part of what Penguin does is attempt to appear reputable he wants to be the way that the roman was viewed in long halloween you know everybody knows he's a crook but because he's so influential and so important in society nobody is willing to say it uh the roman untouchable yes (laughs) gotham's untouchable crime lord And there are various versions of the Penguin that do that. And I think that makes him a more interesting character. Someday in the, maybe for a bonus episode, uh, we'll drag Dan in. And one day when Dan and I were on a road trip, uh, you know, a day trip, we were, he was talking about what I would want to see in a Batman arc after you know, the big to-do that... This was right around the time that the Tinian run was announced. And we nobody was sure if that was, you know, a short run after King before something big. Like, at that point, what people were assuming was the John Ridley 5G run was going to start. He had asked me what I had... What I would want to see for a Batman arc, a long-form arc... And a big part of my concept would have been the Penguin attempting to go straight in a way to finally earn that social credit that he could never get as Oswald Cobblepot, casino owner and secret crime lord. But I had a whole big elaborate thing. Something that, you know, very gritty, very crime-focused 
no big city threatening arc, but that's a whole other thing. Um, if, if if this was a role play, play uh, role play bit, I'd hire you. Sounds perfect. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, I, that's why I think for Penguin, this is another mark of shame on the Cobblepot name that he doesn't want out there because the Cobblepots are Gotham. Gotham's fallen royalty. They're losers to begin with. And he doesn't want them to be scumbag losers as well. And it's a nice contrast with Bruce, who is absolutely willing to disclose what Henry Wayne, uh, I believe it was Henry, right? Yeah. Correct? The, the part that, that Henry played in dismissing these charges, in downplaying you know, the assaults, in, in basically being a scumbag, just as just as culpable as as you know, cobblepots. The design for the West End Wraith for this Avenger of wronged and ignored women in the 1910s, when that kind of thing would have been brushed under the rug as if it hadn't happened, is a great design, and that's a really cool concept that there is this history of vigilantism in Gotham that goes back to the, that goes back to the West End Wraith or longer. I mean, you've got after the Wraith, you would have had Alan Scott, the Green Lantern. You would have had the Reaper. You would have had other vigilantes before Batman. And you would have had characters before Batman who worked outside the law in Gotham. But it, it's a nice link in that chain. Yeah, and again, I, as you said, I just wish we had more time to, to spend with it. More time that would have drawn out this story, that would have done a better job connecting these dots. And this is not, you know, this is not on Phillips. This is on editorial. And like we've said in the column, Every problem with this third volume or second volume, depending on how pedantic you are, uh, every problem with this volume is squarely on DC editorial because it's, you know, this is a forgotten, you know, sort of stepchild. This is not something that was given much attention and, you know, it was just allowed to, to pass away in the night. Even if they were treating this as a tryout, which it, again, I'd wager it probably was the tryout before they gave Phillips the Harley Quinn future state and then ongoing. You would have think they would have given her four chapters instead of two. They'd just given Robertson six chapters to tell, or yeah, six chapters, three issues to tell a story that could have been told in four chapters. Pretty that, story went, that story went fucking nowhere. You could have knocked that one down to four and done this as a four-chapter story, and you could have had more time with the Wraith and some of the other plot points. I would have liked to have spent more time with Penguin's assault on Wayne Manor. I mean, sure, it's fun to have Alfred go out in the Batmobile and shock a bunch of penguin goons and have just penguin make it into Wayne Manor. But it would have been really fun if, you know, you got to see all sorts of booby traps and security features around the mansion slowly 
winnowing down penguins goons yeah but but again because you have such limited space you don't have time to explain how this thing how this vr thing works you don't have time to explain and really get into the assault on the manor and as we said you know even cobblepot's motivations are all just kind of lost in this i guess all taken together right this is this is your standard kind of 22 or so page book but reading in these digital chapters it is you know a half page at a time and it it doesn't feel like a lot of space because really it's not no and i think the format affects that that you since you have to tell it in those half page pieces you have to communicate in certain ways it's a, I'd love to talk to some of the creators, not just those, but any of the creators who've worked in that digital format and see how they had to rethink the way they tell a standard comic book story to work in that format. So just for those folks out there who haven't read any of these digital first chapters, like I know the vast majority of, of comic book people out there are not digital first natives. So DC's inclination for most of their digital first books has been, okay, artists, we want you to lay out a standard page. And generally, like using, um, uh, using Batman and Scooby-Doo as an example, it's basically going to be four, maybe five panels to a page, and we're going to cut it at the halfway point. And for the digital first books, we're going to present those as basically your page. So you're, you're advancing the story half page by half page. So you're not going to have full page splashes. You're not going to have really complex, complicated layouts. And really, you're just going to have this story that advances by the half page. And I think that's really limiting for an artist. But in this story... I didn't have too many complaints, if any, with the art, because it's basically DC house style. And I enjoy that. For, for a Batman book in just kind of your standard, straightforward style, Von Villain covers or colors so many books. It's very professional, very standard, very straightforward. I did not have any complaints when it comes to the art. It's Dunbar does a perfectly good job. I'm a big fan of Bond villains colors this is not her splashiest work but works very nicely it's a good comic and i think it could have been a very good to great comic if it had been given the time to breathe exactly and that's to me that's one of the hardest points as a critic right when you're trying to judge a work and it doesn't totally succeed, but that's at no fault of the creators. Right? This is on editorial. This is on the space they were given. And ultimately, it's, just, it's kind of a bummer. So I think that's probably it on this one. That means it's time to put it on the board. I think so. I think we're going to move a little further down the list from where we just were. 
down to noble experiment territory. Yeah. Maybe a little above noble experiment territory because noble experiment territory usually has something really, there's some fundamental eh about them. And there's nothing in that range here. This is very competent and generally enjoyable. Yeah, and, and we land at a really good point. Like the, the final note is Bruce using that big pot of money of his, trying to make Gotham a better place, providing money for legal aid and services for women. And it's a story that resonates in, you know, 2021 slash 2022, even as, you know, we just wish it had been longer with, as you said, more space. So I can't fault where it lands. I can't fault, you know, the, the storytelling here. I think, I think it's got more to say than Grim Knight at 44. Yes. And probably and more than Last Chance at 43, the Dead Man Gotham Adventure story, which is just sort of rehashing the original Dead Man stories in an animated series style. I think it's interesting because the next story up is Bouncing Baby Boy from JLA 65, which is another book that is trying to say something with Plastic Man about fatherhood. Bouncing Baby Boy irritated the fuck out of me. I hated that Plastic Man as Deadpool, just, just the zaniness. I would be inclined to put it above Bouncing Baby Boy, but I'm not going to fight with you if you no, want to put it below. I, th- I think that would be, I, I would go with that. I don't think it beats Faces. Faces, I mean, the Matt Wagner art is gorgeous. The story has its weaknesses, but is also it's a a mostly successful big swing that sounds like we got our new 42 yes the ultimate answer to the ultimate question of life the universe and everything that does do it for tonight next week it's valentine's week so it's time for love batman style ah and while they don't directly talk about it in this, the, any of these three stories, heroes do that. Yeah, buddy. Bat chat after dark. Damn right. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grove. June is dead. Long live June. Joshua Wheel, Zach Rabaroff, and Abigail Hartbaum for their support. And you I would follow- like to especially thank Abigail. <laughs> You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and on ComicsXF.com, dropping Thursday mornings. You can also support the show on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, and I'm also out of here. Good night, Miami. 
And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff that Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>